we're doing something that um, some of you may think, well, he started this, so he's got to finish it. We're going back to the book of Job. And um, although there is certainly that part of myself, I don't know if it's my Canadianness, my Dutchness, or just part of my personality that I got to finish what I started, um, we're not finishing up the book of Job just because it's something that we started. We started it already in September. Um, it's actually because the message that the book of Job closes with, I think, is a very contemporary message. So in the book of Job, we're in chapter uh, 32 today. Um, Jeff, can you do me a favor? Yes, sir. Inside my coat, black coat right in there, there's my glasses in the side pocket. If you can get my glasses, I would very much appreciate it. The first 29 chapters of... Thank you, sir. Appreciate your servanthood. All of you could be a little bit more like Jeff. <laughs> in the first 30, uh, 31 chapters, uh, we get some stuff. Actually, for the, the for 29 of those chapters, we get the wisdom of humans. We get Job speaking, right? And we get the three friends speaking. And they're speaking about Job's suffering in chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Job and the experience of that and Job's claim of righteousness and wanting a defense from God of what has happened to him. And his uh, friends trying to refute what it is that Job is speaking. That's what we spent our fall with. And there were many things I hope that you were blessed by in what God's word had to say to us. However, there's something unique about that that's different today. This section of Job and what follows is a little different. We're not so much stepping into the wisdom of humankind here, although we do get Elihu to start, and I'll talk about that in a moment. It's also more the wisdom of God. God is showing up. And God will show up in chapter 38 of the book of Job. And for six chapters, Elihu sort of gives a little preamble of what it is that God is going to say. So in 2020, we were living into human wisdom and the experience of humans speaking about suffering. And now in 2021, we get God speaking. Well, I don't know about you. It's not a bad way to start the year. Listen to what God is saying to us about the challenges that we face. And I just want to sort of warn you ahead. This morning's message is a challenging message because I hope that by the end of the message that I've actually reframed your view of the character of Job in Scripture. I hope so because I think that's what God word, God's Word teaches us to do. As we dig in this morning, let's pray for God's blessing and that the Spirit leads us. Father, be present in us through your word and your power to transform our hearts and our minds more and more unto you. I pray, Father, that these are not mine. This is not of human wisdom. But instead, Lord, this is of you, your desire to see your people changed and transformed each day, each week, each month, each year by your word. Lord, make us willing. Move in us that we are open to what you have to say we might be transformed in the hearing of your word to live more into who you want us to be in Jesus Christ. Pray all these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to read a bunch of texts this morning, so hold on along with me. We're starting with chapter 32 of the book of Job. It says this there, 
So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite, Buzite, you take your pick, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite, said, I am young in years, and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person that the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me, I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke, I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say we have found wisdom, let God, not a man, refute him. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they are silent, now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins, ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show no partiality, nor will I flatter anyone. For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. So here's what we know. We know that to this point in the text of the book of Job, that Job has been present and his three friends who have each in their turn sought to refute Job's arguments. But we didn't know that at least at some point they were joined by another character named Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite. And we know nothing else about him. There's no way to really figure out where he comes from or what he's about. We just know that he's there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that he has something to say. And then he's waited patiently. And now in verse 32, he spends a whole chapter saying, get ready because I'm going to speak. He's the sort of guy that by the end of it, you're like, just say what you're going to say already, buddy because he talks about how much he's going to say or how he's going to speak with wisdom. But there's a couple things here that we can glean before he gets to the root of his arguments against Job and his friends. First of all, he's a young man. He's not somebody who's aged and experienced and has all the gray hair of life. He's not, you know, the sort of wise person that we think of when we think of Dale Vandertag. We look at Dale and we see that gray hair and we think of this wise, wise man. He's maybe more young. I don't know where we would go. Maybe we'll, we'll go to one of the Mao children. One of the Mao, maybe he's that young, probably not that young, maybe more like Jason Wagner's age. Doesn't quite have the gray hair, although I think probably if you look real hard, you might find one or two. Yep, they're in there. He's a young man. 
And he says, I have something to offer too. But he says it in a very meaningful and powerful way. Look at verses 6 through 9. He says it this way. I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But the it is the spirit in a person the breath of the almighty that gives them understanding it is not only the old who are wise not only the aged who understand what is right wisdom comes from the holy spirit which means that we need to be sensitive and listen to the spirit move through younger and younger folks we need to do that because how many of us know folks with gray hair who don't seem to be that wise Maybe you're one of them. Harold just pointed to himself. I'm one of them. I am too. But how many of us know young people who seem to be, we call them wise beyond their years? They have something to share. So we need to listen to that. In fact, uh, sometimes that's the challenges that we have in life, right? We have heard the phrase that whatever it is that we're talking about, whether it be politics or business, it's an old boys club, right? We limit it to a certain group of people who have that age and that experience or whatever, instead of opening opportunity up to a younger generation to speak. Here, God is giving and quick a young man to speak wisdom into a very complex, very challenging issue. Elihu also teaches us something about how we share. He's been patient. He did this. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning, verse 11, while you were searching for your words. He was patient and he waited. How many of us need to be patient and wait before we speak? I made the mistake, I make, I make the mistake often, I read an article and then I go into the comments section after an article. You go to a comment section after an article, you see, you read a lot of people who are not patient and listen to the spirit before they speak. Or you see that sort of thing, comments on social media, or even you hear it live and in person. Maybe you know it in your marriage sometimes. People are not patient. They're not spirit-led when they speak. So even in his preamble to saying what he's going to say, Elihu has something to list, something to teach us. Chapter 33. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth, and my words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then if you can. Stand up and argue your case before me. I am the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy on you. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure. I've done no wrong. I'm clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles, keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing, keep them from pride preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the Spirit. 
Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing and their bones once hidden now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. Yet if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, as one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face, shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being and they will go to others and say, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person twice, even three times to turn them back from the pit. The light of life may shine in them. Be atten- pay attention, Job. And listen to me, be silent and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me, speak up for I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen to me, be silent and I will teach you wisdom. Those last couple of verses, it sounds like he is that young man. Don't talk, Job, but if you're going to talk, speak now. Like he's sort of impatient in even listening and speaking to Job. In these, this chapter, he's addressing Job specifically. He's speaking specifically to his arguments, but he's doing it in a very different way than the three friends did. The first thing that he does, which is very different than what the friends did, is he starts with empathy. He says this in verse 6, I am the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. He shows empathy as opposed to the sympathy of the friends. He's entering into Job's experience and saying, this is hard what you are walking in and what I am walking along with you. He's doing it very differently than the friends did. The friends said this, here's how you fix your problem, Job. But Elihu is beginning by saying, I'm with you in it, Job. That's a good thing. The second thing that he does, which is very important, is he mirrors Job's words. How many of you know what mirror, mirroring is when you have conversation? Anyone know what that is? Here's what it means. It means that, and I'm just, this is another, this is free marriage counseling. You can put your offering in the tithe. You can make it, make it a little bit bigger. Free marriage counseling for all of you. How many of you have had arguments in your marriage or maybe with your children or with somebody else because one person couldn't understand what the other person was trying to say? How many of you have had disagreements or fights? All of you married people, put your doggone hands up because all of you have had that experience, right? We don't quite understand each other. The way to be effective at understanding each other is mirroring, meaning you say to the other person what they've already said to you so that they can say, yeah, that's what I said. You understand. It's exactly what Elihu does. Look, we'll see. In verse 8, he says this. You have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure. I've done no wrong. I'm clean, free from sin. Yet God has found fault within me, considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles, keeps close watch on all my paths. So this is not so much theology as psychology. 
Elihu is living into sort of calming Job down and giving him an opportunity to listen better because Elihu understands what it is that he said. Live that out in your marriage, and let me tell you, you'll see conflict going down. It will happen. And then he goes on to speak, Elihu, about how God is present. And you see the different ways that he does that. He starts by saying this, for God does speak, verse 14, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. And then he proceeds to talk about how that happens. Dreams, vision. How many of you have ever had God appear in a dream? Anyone? I had it last night. Not kidding you. Totally happened. I woke up, I think it was 3 o'clock. That was the 3 o'clock wake up. There was a different one at 4 o'clock. 3 o'clock I woke up. And I instantly had this, I had this awareness. In my dream, someone from this community had died and I hadn't known it. And I woke up and I was startled by that. I was startled in the sense of, first of all, I realized it was a dream. God be praised, that person is not dead. However, it moved me that in the week ahead, I am going to be connecting with that person because I want to make sure that they're okay. I just want to interact with them to assure myself perhaps, but at very least make in some ways a pastoral call. That's what God was speaking to me. Connect with that person. So if you get a phone call from me last week, you might have been in my dream at three o'clock last night. But that God speaks sometimes in dreams and visions, but he also speaks in other ways. Elihu begins to talk about the way that he speaks up. God speaks in our lives physiologically. How many of you get unsettled in your gut or in your chest when there's something wrong in life? Anyone? I have it all the time. If there's something unsettled in my life, God is speaking to me through my body and saying, there's something here, you need to address it, you need to deal with it, you need to work it through. God is giving us those sorts of things to speak to us, but that's not the only way that God speaks to us. How many, how many of you have it that God speaks to you in all this? Nature, right? Jess, I know you're a hiker and a runner. God speaks to you there, clearly, right? We all have that in our own unique way. Some of it, it's through music. Last night, yesterday, actually, I, was, uh, I had to drive from Phoenix back here. I was on the road for four and a half hours on the Phoenix to Redlands Drive, which is a boring drive. I was listening to Pandora radio on my phone, and I was listening to secular music. I don't listen to all these Christian music. I listen to secular music. And God spoke to me through some of those songs in powerful ways. There was one song in particular about caring for other people around you that just spoke to my heart in a really powerful way. How does God speak to you? What are the ways that God shows up? And if you know the ways that God shows up in your life to speak to you, to engage in those more intentionally. Jess takes walks daily or at least several times a week. Some of you, like me, I need to listen to music because God speaks to me there. Sometimes God, certainly God speaks to us through his word, daily devotional, prayer, other means of worship, weekly, coming and being a part of things. And all of these things God speaks. How are we listening? But Elihu points out one very particular and special way that God speaks and he does it with in verse 23 it says this there yet if there is an angel at their side a messenger one out of a thousand sent to tell them how to be upright he is gracious to that person and says to God spare them from going down to the pit I have found I have found a ransom for them 
That doesn't sound to me like an angel, does it? Jesus shows up again in the book of Job. I believe that is Elihu pointing out that God shows up even through one who says, there is a ransom for one of my children. What Elihu doesn't know is that the one who's speaking to the hearer is the one who pays the ransom. It's Jesus. God speaks to us in many different ways. The question for us to consistently ask is, how does God speak? And then am I engaging in those ways that God has spoken to me in the past, trusting that he will do so again in the future? Chapter 34. This is where things change a little bit. Hear my words, you wise men. Listen to me, you men of learning. For the ear tests words as the tongue tastes food. Let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked. For he says there is no profit in trying to please God. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I have to say. Can someone who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and the mighty one? If he is not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked, who shows no partiality to princes, does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the works of his hands. They die in an instant in the middle of the night. People are shaken and they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. His eyes are on the ways of mortals. He sees their every step. There's no deep shadow, no utter darkness where evildoers can hide. God has no need to examine people further. They should come before him for judgment. Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place. Because he takes note of their deeds, he overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness where everyone can see them because they turned from following him and had no regard regard for any of his ways. They caused the cry of the poor to come before him so that he heard the cry of the needy. But if he remains silent, who can condemn him? If he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he is over individual and nation alike to keep the godless from ruling, from laying snares for the people. Suppose someone says to God, I'm guilty, but will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I've done wrong, I will not do so again. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I, so tell me what you know. Men of understanding declare, wise men will hear, who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge, his words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion scornfully. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. Elihu has some strong things to say here. 
first thing that he says that's pretty scathing is in verses 8 and 9. He says this, He, that's Job, keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked, for he says there is no prophet trying to please God. He's talking about Job and who he associates with. Who do we know that he associates with? His friends. Job is indicting his friends, or sorry, Elihu is indicting Job's friends for being evildoers because they're not confronting what it is that Job has said. Now, what is it that Job has said that has Elihu so much in a tizzy? Well, here's what Job has said. Job has said he's righteous, right? That's what he said. I have been righteous. Go back to the previous chapter. We heard what Job had said, and he mirrored, Elihu mirrored it back to him. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Elihu mirrored back Job, what Job had said, because he had said, I'm righteous, and God needs to answer for that. And Elihu is saying to Job, that's not just wrong. He's saying it's evil. Hear that. What does he say right at the very end of the chapter? Men of understanding declare. Wise men here who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like what? A wicked man. What's so wicked about Job saying he's righteous? It's not the problem that Job says that he's righteous. Job says that his righteousness is enough. So if Norma were to stand up right here right now and say, I'm a good person, my righteousness is enough for me to receive eternal life, what word would we use to describe her? There's actually an old word that we use probably in the, in the Middle Ages more so. Matt, do you know what that word is? We would call her a H. Hypocrite. Hypocrite, yeah. Heretic, right? We call her a heretic. That's heretical. Because we know Norma, nice lady that she is, wonderful woman that she is, is not righteous enough to receive the gift of eternal life. Right, Norma? You need Jesus. And that's the argument that Elihu is making against Job. Guess what, Job? Your righteousness is not enough. Now here's where we get challenged by our view of Job. How many of us would say that Job is one of the heroes of the text of Scripture? We would say that, wouldn't we? We call the patience of Job. Job is the book of suffering. We've learned so much from this man about what suffering is. And here's Elihu calling Job's argument evil. It's evil to think that your righteousness is enough. But Elihu's not done. Hear what he does next in verse 35. He says this. Do you think this is just? You say I am right, not God. Yet you ask him what profit it is to me and what do I gain by not sinning? I would like to reply to you, to your friends with you, look up to the heavens and see, gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself 
and your righteousness only other people. I want to read that again. Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself and your righteousness only other people. People cry out under a load of oppression. They plead for relief from the arm of the powerful. But no one says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than he teaches the beasts of the earth, makes us wiser than the birds in the sky. He does not answer when people cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention. How much less, then, will he listen when you say that you do not see him, that your case is before him, and you must wait for him, and further, that his anger never punishes, and he does not take the least notice of wickedness. So Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies words. Elihu's going after him. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that, Job, what you're saying is not just empty, but it's evil because you're basically saying my righteousness is enough. Elihu is saying your righteousness only affects the people around you. I want you to think about that for a moment. How does your and my righteousness impact God? I'll ask the question differently. Does your righteousness make God any more righteous? No. If that's the case, then we can never, ever gain anything because of our righteousness. We can never gain anything before God because of our righteousness because we can't add to what he already has. Whatever we received from God is a gift, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. What Elihu's argument to Job is, is simply this. Your evilness separates you from God and that you can't get away from God no matter what, so that doesn't work. And your righteousness doesn't add anything to God so that's not going to work you need something else Elihu doesn't quite know what the answer is he sort of gets at it in verse 23 of the previous chapter but he can't know because we just celebrated something he knew nothing about we celebrated the coming of Christ because that's exactly what Job needs and that's exactly what we need. In the year 2021, let our mantra, let our saying, let our resolution to be get more Jesus in this world because that's the only answer to any of this. Get more of what Christ offers to all of us because that's the only thing worth anything. Righteousness doesn't really cut it. Yes, it's a good response to what God has given us. Yes, it's obedience. That's all good, but it doesn't add anything to God's kingdom. What we receive from him is a gift of his grace. And here's the thing about grace. God's gift to us that changes the whole story. God's grace cost him something, right? It cost him Jesus. It cost him his son. It cost him the death of his son, suffering, even separation from the son that he had been eternally joined with. It cost God something to give us grace. And then he says to us, and then you go share grace likewise. Now, we may consider ourselves gracious people. 
But if we're going to exhibit grace like God exhibited grace in the year 2020, for us to be reminded that God's grace cost him something, perhaps for us to offer grace costs us something too. In fact, I know it does. In the year 2021, grace should be and has to be shown more in our world among each other. That's really what Elihu is saying. You and I need more of God's grace because nothing else cuts it. We get grace. What do we do? We then share it. Go out and share it. Share grace with others, with the world that so desperately needs it. We need it. But remember, grace comes with a cost. Grace comes with this cost. It means that if there is something that you have done to me, let's say Bill has done something to me. Bill's done nothing to me. But let's say he had. My grace says this, Bill, no matter what you did, I release the power of that thing from having impact on my life. And it takes a cost to do that, right? I have to give up control. I have to give up the consequence of that thing for him. He doesn't have to sit there and worry that I'm going to condemn him because of what he has done. That's the cost of grace, giving up control, giving up our lives because that's the cost that God paid for us. That's what Elihu is saying to Job. You need more of it. You need grace because your righteousness isn't enough. Can we be a people who offer what it is that Job didn't even know he, no, he, he, he knew he, he needed. Can we be people who offer that gift that was offered to all of creation through Jesus Christ? We have received it. Can we offer it to others? Because you know what? Right now it's hard. It's hard to offer grace. Why? Because people tick you off, don't they? How many of you have people who've ticked you off already today? I have it. James? Just kidding. James has been a good guy. We have that in our world. Grace says this. I let those people who have ticked me off off the hook. Not because of what they've done, but because of what he's done. And I will do that. I will be the first to do that. I will be a person in the year 2021 who will offer grace quicker. I will be a person. If I have an argument with Kristen, my wife, the argument will be this. Who's going to ask for forgiveness first and who's going to offer more grace to the other? That's the sort of 2021 that we can live into because that's the sort of world that Elihu is saying that Job doesn't know. We need to because we know Jesus they didn't. And in his gift of grace, Christ changes everything for us. Can we live into that change? in the year ahead. God is good. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this meal. Thank you, Son, for your gift of life. Thank you, Spirit, for daily reminding us of your presence. We pray, Father, that this meal equips us to be people who are willing to, in the world that so desperately needs more of your grace, pay the price giving up ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following you, loving others as you have loved us, sacrificing, submitting to one another. Lord, that we would be people who show the world more of who you are because otherwise the world gets filled with Job, 
people who think they can earn it, people who think they're good enough. Lord, that's not true, and we don't want those people to fall into sin, fall away from you. We want to show them who you really are, one who with open arms offers this gift, this gift of life, of love, wholeness, and hope, the gift of an eternity. Father, may we be people who carry that hope, that message to the world so that they might hear. In Christ we pray, amen.